Hey, welcome. Glad you're here. If you want to take your Bible, set it on your lap, uh, pull out your phone, check your social media. (laughs) Just kidding. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Genesis chapter 15, Galatians chapter 2, if we have time, and Revelation chapter 7. Those are a few places that we'll be turning uh, this morning. We started a series a a few weeks ago, about a month ago, called Questions. And we've been taking up uh, some questions that all of us have. We started with, uh, can I trust my Bible? Uh, We uh, talked about what is the gospel. Uh, Last week we talked about, can my pain and my faith live in the same house? Is that possible? How do I reconcile those two things together? And uh, today I thought we would take up uh, one of the most important questions of all. Uh, Why does the Bible talk about circumcision so much? I don't know if you ever thought about that. That's pretty weird. Maybe a better way to say it, a way that sounds less odd, is uh, why does the Bible talk about being Jewish and being Gentile so much? Uh, Those are not uh, terms that we use that often uh, is concerning us as Gentiles, unless you have a Jewish heritage, I'm guessing most of us are Gentile. That's not the way we classify ourselves anymore. So we get to those parts of the scripture and it's in there a lot. We just sort of glaze over it. But as we're glazing over it and rushing by, we are really rich, missing a rich and beautiful part of God's work. So I thought we would talk about it today from Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11. Now remember two weeks ago we talked about what is the gospel and we used chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. So that shows you just how important this really is. On the heels of what is the gospel, that we were dead in our sins but God resurrected us with Christ and has now given us good work to do. Um, Paul immediately starts talking about this Jewish Gentile thing. He says in verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which was made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, remember, uh, Jesus was Jewish. He was born to Jewish uh, parents in Israel. Uh, We usually don't think of Jesus as being Jewish. We we think of him as having an ethnicity that is whatever our ethnicity is. And often our art and pictures of him back that up. Whoever you are, Jesus is just like you. The truth was, he wasn't. 
He was born in Israel to Jewish parents. Jesus was very much Jewish. He has an ethnicity, and for most of us in here, I'm guessing, it is a different ethnicity than we are. What made that a challenge is that the original disciples, they were Jewish, so they understood Jesus in this way. Uh, The very first Christians hearing the gospel were also Jewish. But then the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection began to spread from Jerusalem into the gospel frontiers of the Roman world to people who were not Jewish and they had a big question. To follow Jesus, do I also have to take on Jesus' Jewishness? Meaning, do I need to follow the law in the same way he followed the law? Do I have to wash my hands in the same way that he had to wash his hands? Am I not allowed to eat this kind of food because Jewish people don't eat that food? Do I have to take on not only his gospel, his life, death, resurrection, promise, return? Do I have to take on his ethnicity as well and the practice of his ethnicity? And so they had a big council in Jerusalem, actually. The book of Acts tells us about that. And the ruling was, no, you don't also have to become Jewish to follow Jesus. But you know that saying one thing and writing it down on paper is one way, actually practicing it is another. And so it was common in these early churches for Jewish Christians, Jewish followers of Jesus to feel like they had a superiority over Gentile Christians because they were a little bit more like Jesus than their Gentile brothers and sisters. And so the apostle Paul here starting in verse 11, is writing to those Gentile Christians to tell them just how included they are in the gospel. Verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. So the Jewish people had a nickname for the Gentiles and it was the non-circumcision or the uncircumcision. Now that doesn't sound like a very derogatory nickname, does it, in our culture? But it actually was. If you got little kids, just put your fingers in their ears uh, just for a minute. What the Jewish people would say about the Gentiles is they would call them the foreskins. So when you say it like that, you're like, oh yeah, that is offensive. I get it. I get it. So Paul is saying, this is a fact. The Jewish people feel like they have something above the Gentile people. This this idea of circumcision, it it came from God's command to Abraham. God chose Abraham. uh, Through you, I'm going to build a nation. And the physical mark of this nation is circumcision. So all the males in Abraham's house and all of his male descendants after that would take on the mark of circumcision. That wasn't uh, incredibly common around the world at that time. And so it literally distinguished them among all the peoples on, on the earth. Right? Um, but over time, it began something to begin to be something that they would sort of brag about and, and feel good about, which makes sense when you understand a, a lot of Israel's history. I mean, even today, it's a very small country that we talk about a lot. I mean, you think of nations that are that small around the world. They are not daily coming up in American conversations, but Israel is different. Why? Because they have been the historic people of God. But since the end of the Old Testament, the period of exile, Israel, God's people, have been ruled by foreign powers. Assyria, Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, 
the Romans. So they've been God's people, but forever they've, they've been dominated by a world power. But to them, they think, but you know what we do have? We don't have control over our land anymore, but what we do have is we can say we are uniquely God's. And so you can understand how they would begin to use circumcision as sort of bragging rights. It was something that they had that separated them from the rest of the world, especially in those seasons where they lacked control over their own country. Verse 12, remember that at, uh, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, God had made covenants to Israel. There are four major covenants in the Old Testament. There's God's covenant with Noah. I'm never going to flood the earth again. I'm not going to destroy it in the way that I did. There's God's covenant with Moses and the Israelites that we read about in Exodus. You're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And here is the law that I want you to follow. There's God's promise to David. One of your descendants is always going to be on the throne of Israel. And there's God's covenant with Abraham. And it is for the Israelites, the covenant of covenants. And we read about it in Genesis chapter 15. If you want to keep a finger in Ephesians chapter 2, turn there with me. Genesis chapter 15. Verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Uh, His name would later be changed to Abraham. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God had picked Abraham out of obscurity in Genesis chapter 12 and said, Abraham, I want to make out of you a great nation. Abraham said, amazing, huge problem. I have no children. Uh, My wife and I are not ever going to be able to have children. We are in the Old Testament way of thinking barren. So how on earth is this going to happen? And he's saying in Genesis chapter 15, my heir, the person that is going to inherit all of my things, and Abraham was a pretty wealthy guy, is like my lead servant. He's not my son And God brings him outside and he says, look at the stars, uh, start counting them. That's how many descendants that you're going to have. And Abraham believed him, even though science and experience would tell him differently. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2 is that the Gentiles are outside of those covenants. Uh, Those covenants do not include them. God's promise to Abraham of descendants and blessing outside of those. God's promise to the Israelites of I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. They were cut off from that. 
See, back in those days, from Genesis 15 to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, being an atheist would have been pretty rare. That's more of a modern development. At, at the time, they swung to the opposite end, which is they believed in lots of different gods. In fact, every nation and people had their own god that they looked to and they believed looked out after them. Like, for example, I brought a little chart with me because I know you guys are nerds. Um, uh, the Canaanites, Baal was their god. We read about this in the Old Testament. So they believed that Baal was the God of the sky. He was the God of the rain. And when he would bless the earth with rain, uh, it would make everything grow. So he was also the God of fertility. And so the Canaanites looked to Baal. They believed in other gods and goddesses, but Baal was the one that they linked themselves to. Baal looked out for them and they owed their allegiance to Baal. Uh, The Moabites right next door to the Canaanites, they believed in Chemosh. Same thing, they had other gods and goddesses, but the one god that was assigned to the Moabites in their thinking was Chamus. And so they would offer things to him and he would offer things back to them. Israel believed in Yahweh. That's the God of the Bible. So anytime you're reading the Old Testament and you see the word Lord and it's all in capitals, that is a placeholder in our English vocabulary for Yahweh, his personal name, which he revealed to Moses through the burning bush. So the Israelites looked to Yahweh and Yahweh looked out for them. The Philistines, they looked to Dagon. Dagon looked out for them. Even in... uh, Ephesians chapter two, uh, this is still going on. When the apostle Paul brought the gospel to Ephesus, uh, people began to respond to the power of Christ and they began giving up their occultic practices and burning their dark arts books. And so the people who sold that kind of stuff, they started freaking out and they started a riot actually. And the chant of the riot was great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's what they were shouting because Artemis, in their mind, the Greek goddess, looked out for the Ephesians. She was the Greek, a Greek goddess throughout the Greek empire, but the Ephesians had a special relationship with her. This is what they believed. But what the Israelites had always believed, and God had always said through his word, is that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is over everyone and everything. He's at the top. So you can see that represented here in the chart with the next slide. Um, There it is, right? Uh, that's what the Israelites believed. Uh, two weeks ago, I, I, I told you about, um, imagine if Abraham Lincoln was the president of the United States and the mayor of Springfield, Illinois, where he was from. This is what the Israelites believed about Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is uh, he looks out especially for us, but he's in charge of everything. Now, what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Ephesians and the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Philistines is these gods that you've attached yourselves to, they're they're not even real. That's why he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, you have no hope and without God in the world. You, You think that someone is looking out for you, but they are not. Because these gods and goddesses are not real. Only the God of the Israelites is real. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Israelites had always believed that the Gentile world would be blessed through Abraham and them. And they knew they needed a savior. 
the prophets had been prophesying a Messiah. Because again, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, leading up to Ephesians chapter 2, Israel had not been in charge of themselves. They needed someone to rescue them from Greece and Rome and whatever world power would come next. So they looked for the Messiah. And their story that they told themselves was God would anoint the Messiah. The Messiah would rally the people of Israel, Israel uh, have so much momentum going into Jerusalem, push out whatever Roman emperor was in charge at the time. They would be able to rule themselves. The Messiah would be king on a throne in Jerusalem. God would begin to establish his kingdom there in Jerusalem. God's own presence would fill uh, Jerusalem again. And then the blessing of that utopia of God's kingdom would overflow to whatever nations were adjacent Israel. So the blessing would be on Jerusalem and Israel, and then it would overflow into the world. But what Paul is saying in the gospel is that is not what has happened in Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. The Messiah has come and established God's kingdom, not by sitting on an earthly throne, but by, by being crucified, by, being, by shedding his own blood. And then he took the nations, the Gentiles. He didn't let the blessing be adjacent to them. He said, no, you come in. You come all the way in. You have been far off, but now you are just as near as my own people Israel. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. God had given his people the law as a, as a way of saying, this is how my people act. But over time, the Israelites begin to use the law as a fence between them and the Gentile world. So while there were dietary laws that were a part of the Old Testament, they began elevating those and giving those a priority because it is what separated them from regular people. We wash our hands this way. We eat this, we don't eat that. They began to use the law not as a way to honor God, but to separate themselves from the rest of the world. It it became a fence And anytime you build a fence, you look with hostility at the person on the other side of the fence. Why don't they mow their yard? I mean, why do they mow their yard or have someone mow their yard and then they set the garbage bag out on Friday afternoon with the leaves and then they they know that the trash is not coming till Tuesday and we got to look at their trash bag all weekend long. There's a fence between my neighbor and I. We look at hostility to whoever's on the other side of that fence. Not that that happens in my neighborhood or your neighborhood, of course. They were using the law to keep themselves separated. Uh, Even in their, their temple, there was a place for the Gentiles. But then there was a, literally a wall that if you were a Gentile, you couldn't go further on into the temple unless you were Jewish. And in Acts chapter 21, the Apostle Paul is almost killed because they believe that he has snuck a Gentile person past that wall. 
But what he's saying to the Gentile Ephesians is the walls between Jewish people and Gentile people, God has brought tumbling down in the crucified Christ. There's no longer those who are in and those who are out, those who are close and those who are far away. If you are in Christ, everyone is near. And it says in verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Notice both groups Jesus preached peace to. Peace to the Gentiles and peace to the Jewish people. Every person, no matter your ethnicity, your background, your culture, needs a message of peace with God and peace with each other. Verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You know, every culture is different. Even church cultures are different. I grew up in a small Baptist church and the true sign that God was on the move was that people would come at the end of the service and kneel down at the altar. Uh, we had these little prayer benches uh, next, you know, on the front uh, by the stage. And, um, and whenever you were particularly moved by the message, you would come down and, and pray and you would repent or something. It was just a big deal. And most Sundays, nothing happened. I really felt bad for my pastor because he would be standing there and we would all just be staring back at him. I felt so, I felt so bad for him. I, wanted, I decided to become like him. So... Uh, <laughs> But at my church, that was the going to the altar was the thing. So imagine how my mind was shifted when at 20 years old, went to Africa and was worshiping with Ugandan church out in the middle of nowhere. They literally had no church building. Every Sunday they would come to that particular tree and they would have the most amazing, vibrant church service that I've ever been a part of. But there were no benches to come and pray at the altar. You can't have church if you don't give people the opportunity to come and pray at the altar. Every church is different. Every culture is different. Every ethnicity is different. But the one thing that we can have in common is the spirit of God that we've been given in Christ that gives us the ability to call God Father. So even if there is someone that you think, I have nothing in common with them, If you have the spirit of God in common with them, you have more than enough to be one, to be unified. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now this is easy to agree with on paper. It's a real challenge to to live out. Because it's one thing to say all of us have been invited but our human nature is to think, but I got invited first. Yeah, everybody got invited. But the most important thing is that I'm the one that's here. My presence here in this house is more legitimate than someone else's presence. I belong here more. See, our theology is what brings us together. It's our attitude that drives us apart. Our theology says that all of our walls of hostility between us and Jewish people or us and another race or ethnicity or background or culture, Jesus has torn all of those walls apart. It's our attitude 
that pushes us back out against each other. You know, when you go to a, a party at someone's house, you, you can tell who the family members are because they're always in the kitchen doing things. You're the invited guest if you're the one sitting on the couch just waiting while they're in the kitchen doing things. And what Paul is saying is Gentile or Jewish, everyone is invited to the kitchen. Everyone belongs equally in Christ. Verse 20. Built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he goes from a family metaphor to a house metaphor, the physical structure of the building. And he says that the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Those are the first people to proclaim the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and return. But Christ is the cornerstone. Every Saturday I watch This Old House on PBS, record it, love it, uh, Not good at the things that they show on there, but would like to be one day. And every home that they redo, because it's uh, this old house is out of alignment. The walls are crooked, nothing is straight, and they always comment about it. And so they have to find some way to straighten back up the walls, bring the whole house into level. Because over time, what has happened is pressure from the weight above and time has allowed things to settle. And so it shifts things. That's why we have as our number one goal here at Bayou City, we want to be a church with a radical focus on Jesus because he is the cornerstone. But time and pressure causes us to be out of alignment. So we have to come together every single Sunday and remember Jesus is the cornerstone. We're not taking our lines off another church or other people or this thing or that thing. We're getting our alignment from Jesus alone. Our radical focus is on him. He's the cornerstone But time and pressure causes us to shift. The apostles are their foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. We are the rest of the house. We are the structure. We are the lumber. We are the flooring. We are the bricks. We are the mortar. No matter who you are. You know, isn't it funny how quickly a a gift of grace from God can become an opportunity for us to judge someone. And that's what the Jewish people were doing, Jewish Christians were doing to the Gentile Christians. The Jewish, Jewish people were God's people because God graciously chose Abraham out of obscurity. It's not like Abraham was being super godly and God said, okay, now I will choose you. Probably at the time, Abraham didn't even believe in the God of the Bible. But the Jewish Christians were just using that gift of grace to look down on the Gentile Christians. That's like saying, my spouse is a gift of God to me. And then looking at a single person and us saying, why can't you get your act together? Why aren't you married? 
No, it can't be both. Your spouse can't be a gift of God from you and an opportunity for you to judge somebody who's not married yet. Our favorite song to sing at sporting events is God Bless America. It's good. It's prayer. We can't then go and look at other nations around the world and say, what's the matter with you? Why can't you get it together? Can't be both. It can be one, that we are awesome. And we are fantastic. And we are better. Or it can be that God has blessed us. But you cannot use the favor of God as an instrument to look down on someone who is made in the image of God. This is what the Jewish Christians were doing to the Gentile Christians. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no way. In Christ, it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter what culture you're from. Everybody has an essential role. It's not like the Jewish Christians were the lumber and the wood and the bricks and the Gentiles were the throw pillows. Everyone has a meaningful and important place in God's house. And this is how God talks about it at the end. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. This is still to come. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So at the end, in the fullness of the kingdom of God, we're just all in there together. Every culture, every tribe, every nation, not one lifted up more than the other. All of us belonging, all of us essential, worshiping God and God the Son. That's the promise that's to come. Revelation chapter 7 is an outworking of Ephesians chapter 2. That's why we send mission teams around the world. Because we believe that God is using us to get to Revelation chapter 7. In, in the spring, early in the spring, we, we need about 40 more people to, to go to India, Puerto Rico, and Ecuador. So that Revelation chapter 7 happens. The Jewish people believed that in the temple in Jerusalem is where heaven and earth met together. I mean, even as I mentioned, their narrative about the coming Messiah was the Messiah would become king and God's presence would fill up the temple with smoke and glory just as he had done in the days of Solomon in the Old Testament. And, and what Paul is saying is, is that already happened. God has filled up his temple with his presence. Verse 22, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Except for the temple that God filled up is not a building in Jerusalem. It's a church built together with every ethnicity, every tribe, every language, every nation. And that's why the Bible talks so much about circumcision. Let's pray.